By the time you play this podcast, anything we say factual based around the coronavirus is going to be outdated. Luckily, the show isn't about the coronavirus. It's just me with two reasonably smart guys talking about a book that seems to parallel the coronavirus outbreak. I got my good friend, Ted Cummings, on the show. Welcome to the show, Ted. Hey, appreciate you, B. Thank you. Yeah. Ted uh, was classmates with Maurice and I at the illustrious capstone of education, Howard University, in engineering. Uh, and so we took a lot of the same classes. Maurice was in biology, so a lot of the same classes crossover. And recently he's written his first book called Slumber. It's written as book one of a series of four or five books in his Sleeper's book series. And the crazy thing is the parallel that just seems to happen in his book. And I'll let him tell you all about it. There's a, a, a viral pandemic that happens. What happens to it? So a lot happens. And I got to be careful here because I don't want to draw too many obvious comparisons. But here's what happens in my book. My book is black science fiction. There is a mutated viral outbreak that happens in the continental United States. Wait, the, the, is it just the United States? That was a question I had before. Yeah, it is. It's just the continental United States, right? Mm. There, there. As it turns out, there's a coordinated uh, release of the virus uh, from the places within the United States that it exists. The virus is airborne. Um, it is communicable by touch, communicable by uh, uh, body fluids, uh, uh, and in the water. The virus, you know, is it is comes from a drug that was created by a pharmaceutical company that was intended to literally extend the lives of people who take it, right? But as these things go, it literally, you know, knocks people out um, in an irreversible way. So you're, you're, you're somewhere at your law practice one day or at your son's football practice or your daughter's dance classes or something, and you're like, I got an idea for a book. It's like, what happened? How did you go from patent lawyer to I'm going to write a book about contagion. Right, right. So six years ago, and I want to emphasize this, brother, six years ago, um, I was in a very contemplative mood. And I was asking myself existential questions like, you know, what would the state of black people in America be if slavery had been, for example, cut short at the end of the Revolutionary War? What would the state of black people be if Jim Crow had never happened and this era of extreme terrorism against black people had never occurred in the South and in other places? What would the state of black people be and what would it look like for black people with all our gifts, talents and so forth to access the full benefit of what this country offers um, without the extreme systemic racism that you know we all deal with, both at a at a macro level and a microaggressive level, mm. and and it was sort of out of those contemplations that I began to think about a story in which um, um, racism, as we understand it, systemic racism as we understand it to get today, was removed. And then you couple that with all of our understanding six years ago and even now of what we've been told about demographic shifts in the country. So this story begins to be created. And, and, and so, so we're told things like by 2040 or by 2050, the demographics of this country will cause it to be a majority black and brown country. Right. right? But what would it look like if that happened, if that, if that extreme demographic shift happened suddenly? 
what would it look like if it happened in one day? And if mm. it happened in one day or over the course of a very short time period, what would be the mechanics behind something like that happening? Well, there would, it would obviously have to be something happening to two-thirds of the population. So in my book, you know, the virus impacts everyone, but essentially one-third of the, of the population is essentially immune to the effects of the virus, and two-thirds of the population are not immune, right? Mm. And so, you know, one day, one-third of the population wakes up with two-thirds essentially knocked out of the game or what I call put on pause, Right, they're put on pause, and in a one third remaining, you know, are are struck with some critical questions like, okay, this happened. Um, what do we do about the country? What do we do to help and protect the two thirds who were essentially knocked out? Mm. And how do we protect ourselves from you know enemies within and without? Right. You both have done a lot of writing, both of you, uh, in different in different avenues. How did you handle that process? And and Mo, I'd love to get you chimed in on this. You know, who read the book while you were writing it? Did you bounce it off other people? Was there a, um, did you have an editor or did you, did you like just let your mind go wild creatively? Did you, you know, did you have somebody maybe reel you in on some ideas? How'd that work? Yeah, great question, man. So, so, I mean, as you, as you pointed out, I'm, I am an attorney, I'm a patent attorney by profession. So, you know, I'm literally a writer by profession, right? But six years ago, I was absolutely not a writer of fiction, Right. Um, but because I am a writer, I understood, OK, I have this really grand, grandiose idea. Let me begin to write the idea down. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't call it writing the story because it wouldn't qualify to be a story at that point. But I started writing the idea down. And then it was a point at which I decided, you know what, let me sort of begin to to fictionalize this a bit. And and so then I began to write, you know, write the story. But again, I was not a writer of fiction at the time at all. In fact, I've transformed into a pretty good writer of fiction. Since then, I've had six years to do it. Um, and along the way, man, there have been many editors. If you look at my dedication page, I have a whole dedication, you know, to the three or four editors that helped me the most. Um, but I've had family and friends read it and encourage me and criticize and provide pointers and, and, and information. Um, I've gone through multiple rewrites um, and, you know, and, you know, I've, I've made changes and I've just grown in the craft. Um, and today I would say, yeah, I am a I am a writer of fiction. I know how to do that. And I'm pretty good at it right now. For me, it was, you know, my, my writing is much, you know, is much more technical. Um, but I, I agree with what you were saying, Ted, in terms of having to identify as a writer. That was my biggest, my sure. biggest challenge, you know, to go from to go from thinking myself as an educator to thinking myself as a writer and as a as a, you know, to go from thinking of yourself as a patent attorney to think of yourself as a patent lawyer who is a writer, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and I, and I don't, and I, I, I edit the word also out at the same time, because for me in particular in scholarship, if I were to think of myself, I struggled my most when I thought of myself as an educator who was also a writer and I had to change uh -huh. my identity and my advisor, Geneva Gay, who is, you know, my academic grandma and I, and I love her to death, man. Geneva, she took me down through there, man, I, you know, and and broke me down and rebuilt me as a writer and got me uh -huh. to re-identify as an educator who is a writer. Um, and as a writer who is an educator, right. you know what I mean? And see those things and see those things mm -hmm. equally. And yeah, man, um, 
you know, mm-hmm. writing, a, writing and, and academic writing and writing a dissertation, you know, those types of things require, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, that's the thing, you know, I had to set my ego aside because, you know, mm-hmm. and I know you felt the same thing. You threw your life because you're, you're writing against, you know, I always talk about it like it. So I think about it also as a wrestler. Right. And people are like, oh, man, no, you, you know, you wrestle. So you feel covered. Like, yeah, man, listen, it, it God forbid I ever got in some sort of physical confrontation. I'm old ass man at this point. If I can't talk you out of it or buy you a drink, you know what I mean? Shit is going drastically wrong. But right. <laughs> if I had to get into a physical confrontation with Billy Bar fight, you know, you know, Joey drank too much. I'm I'm good there. But like. You put me in, you know, in the ring with some, you know, with some a UFC club dude. I'm in trouble. You know what I mean? So I know it's a long with an analogy, but I had to think of myself, right? Like growing up, like all oh, you can, oh, you can write. You're such a good writer. You're such a good writer. Middle school, right. high school, you know, because right. you're out writing all of your classmates. You know, Billy Bar fight. You know, J- Joey drank too much. Them kids who was just like, man, fuck this class. I just want to go. Right. You know. Right. So just as someone who is invested in writing and trying to be good at it. And I became a good writer. And then I really, (laughs) I got completely rebuilt. It was like, yeah, you're a good writer, but we need to make you into a great writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in, in doing that, I had to learn. And, and one of the things I'm learning, I'm still, I'm still working on it. I'm sure as you, you know, as you said, it's a craft. And if it's a craft, then you constantly have to hone it. You know, I've known Tim for a very long time, and to hear him say he's a good writer, it doesn't surprise me because I don't think I've ever heard him admitted that he's not good at something. You mentioned ego. There's an ego (laughs) with a pink shirt on on the shirt with us today. So, (laughs) Ted, who has told you you're a good writer? So that's 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 really that's really a great question. Um, (laughs) Let me be clear. I'm not claiming greatness at at all. I'm 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 if I, I I stand on pretty good and I might be good, right? And I've always said about my story, B, I've always said this about the story. The story is freaking great. The story is great. It is limited only by the proficiency of the writer. That's its only limitation. Nice. And the only reason, yeah, I mean it's true, bro. And the only reason I even went on ahead and published it is that I thought the writing was finally good enough not to limit unduly the story. Okay. So I'd like to ask you about the future as foretold in your book without giving away the plot points. I just want to understand like book one through four, that how many years is that? Let me, let me just give a quick synopsis of sort of book one and then some really big ideas of book two. Okay, so so book one is the introduction of what happens. Right. And we see at the end of book one a bit of what happens in terms of society being altered and beginning to change. Right. Mm -hmm. And book one is called Slumber. Book two, which I've started to write. In fact, I've begun to write the prologue. Book two is called Awakening. Right. Book two is basically two books. And this is where I struggle, man. Book two may end up being Awakening Volume One and Awakening Volume Two, right? And I just have two 500 page, you know, new books instead of just one big 1,000 page book, you know, and we'll discuss that sort of offline. Um, but, but half of book of two will be a wrap up of book one, right? And some major sort of political changes and, and that and, and societal changes. Um, but then the other half shoots 80 years into the future. Okay. Right. So now we've got 80 years 
of this new society, you know, run and developed by black and brown and Asian people. Right. Um, and 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 how that looks throughout the country. And, you know, in the second part of book two, um, all of the you know, the two thirds of folk, most of the two thirds of folk who've been able to be saved and reclaimed and helped and so forth and essentially stored, you know, they wake up. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they wake up essentially having aged very little from the time they um, went to sleep in slumber. But when they wake up, they wake up to a very different America. It's still America, right? But it's, it's, it's 80 years later, it's quite a bit different. And so that's going to be sort of an exploration of shit, three, four generations of black people who have never known, black and brown and Asian people who have never known systemic racism in this country. And they've, they've created something which is, you know, really far out. Yeah, that's incredible that um, the fact that they don't age was the key. You know, immediately I said, you're 80 years in the future and people wake up. Well, they decrepit. They're looking like Bill Russell on the side sideline of the game. Uh, but you're saying they don't age. So that's that's a nice plot device. Yeah. And it's and it's and it's interesting. So so I know one of my major characters. So so it's, so so in book one, guys, like I know who my audience is. But book one is black people. Right. African-Americans. That's my audience. Right. And, and, and that's who I most want to win with in book one, and in particular, black women. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and if I were, for example, if I were doing like a Netflix series on something like this, um, you know, the writer's room for book one for season one or season two or whatever it is, would be 100 percent African-American, 100 percent. Right. That's the voice that, 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 that needs to resonate. That's the lens through which I'd want that story to be told. Book two's Netflix writer's room would be half black and half white, right? Because there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a lens, there's a white lens looking at the society in which white people are not the center of the story of that society. Like, like I can't reproduce that voice. I can speculate Mm -hmm. as to that voice. Right. Right. But, but book two, I'm essentially writing, you know, to America itself. Right. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of how, and, and really I would say all the remainders of books in the series would have that approach. Got it. How much, how much Ted, uh, do you balance between, uh, the, you know, the time travel science fiction, you know, aspects, um, and paradoxes that happen, you know, um, and not not so much time travel, but just forwarding through time. Mm-hmm. We know that as a as a device in literature, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. causes a lot of different, you know, ramifications for how characters have to deal with, you right. know, this immediately forwarded universe, right? Um, how much of the of the science do you dig into, as opposed to how much of the social commentary? How did you go about deciding how much mm-hmm. of each you wanted to dig into? Yeah, good question, man. And I actually sort of struggle with how sci-fi I want to make this because I could really go all the way there. I'm a Star Trekky, I'm a Star Warsy guy. You know, I can go <laughs> all the I can go all the way there, right? Yeah, but yeah, but, yeah. But but I'm choosing to sort of, from a literary perspective, I'm choosing to put the brakes on how scientifically robust I'm going to make the story, right? Um, because in this instance, I think the social commentary is more important to explore than, hey, we just created Wakanda in America, 
right? We'll, we'll, <laughs> right? I mean, we'll, we'll see that, yeah. and we'll and we'll we'll explore a bit of that, right? But but I'm going to explore it this way. So, for example, I know one of my major characters in in book two is going to be you know a brilliant white forty something, fifty something, you know, um, um, neurosurgeon, right? Who, when he wakes up, you know, wants to go back to being a neurosurgeon, right? Um, but because the technology has so advanced beyond where he was, he is yeah. no longer at all qualified to sure. be a doctor at all, right? And yeah. so, this, so this cat has got to deal with and struggle with his his relevance in this new society, right? Yeah. And how to be relevant. And so, it, so, so technology. So you see how I'm sort of talking about technology and how it gets used in that instance. But technology right. isn't really the point. It's this man's, sure. you know, relevance, which gets put on on display and how he deals with that. Um, and and right. that's the commentary that I want to get to. Right. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. You know, it reminds me a lot of um, when you meet uh, friends and neighbors who have come here from other countries who may have been <clears throat> engineers or doctors. And right. now they manage Dunkin' Donuts. You know, yeah. because he's that's driving, just what it is. Driving that cab. He's yeah. driving that cab. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. And and the normal, the regular part of their daily lives isn't the struggle with the technology to fit back in. It's what my new life as the manager of Dunkin' Donuts looks like. You know, which is why I hear you saying you going with it, Ted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 not only that, and I'll sort of add this too, you know, there there is a major shift and resources and property that happens as well, right? So, so there's a point at which the country has to make a decision with, you know, who's going to own these houses and who's going to own this stuff and so on and so forth. And there's just a major redistribution of resources that occurs. So when these cats wake up 80 years later, you know, there's no house for them to go back to. That bank account no longer exists. The physical material things that they've had and, and they've had access to and a privilege of having, those things no longer exist. And on top of that, the economics of how the country operates is also shifted, right? And mm-hmm. so it's not an issue of, it's not an issue of, you know, I mean, you know, can they be cared for? Will they have a place to live? Can they have a job? Those things are not at issue, right? What is at issue is their ability to live at a level of privilege that frankly no longer exists for them. Right. Right. And that's and I'm sort of, you know, and that's even before we get into certain anti-political aspects of how they are now viewed as sort of folk who who reawaken. And again, as I said, are no longer the center of the story. I've got a couple of um, things as you're talking that to me seem like they must have been influential in your writing of this Mm. book. So I want to run them by you. And even if they weren't, I just love to hear your feedback on what you think of that as a parallel or as an addendum to your story. The first sure. is the walking dead, the, the awakening of Rick Grimes who goes to sleep in this world normal and wakes up in this apocalyptic, everything has mm-hmm. changed world. How mm-hmm. does, how does that feel? And, and, and how does it relate to your story? So the thing I love about Rick Grimes is um, his, his character. I love about his character um, was his, basically his immediate adaptability, mm-hmm. right? He quickly identified the problem. Um, he did not lament his position and he got real focused on discovering his who, what, when, where, and how, right? Um, you know, in terms of dealing with his wife and his son and, and gaining the tools necessary to get to them 
um, and survive along the way mm-hmm. as he constantly picked up new data, right, to figure out what are the rules of this new world, right? That's absolutely the backbone of, of, of how I treat black and brown people in my story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first question they deal with, in fact, is, okay, how, how do we keep being a country, right? It, number one, should we do that? And number two, if the answer is yes, then how do we do that? So then, if, so then if the answer to that is, well, now we're on a search for how, then it becomes the game of adaptability. What are the rules of this new world? Oh, it's just us, right? Mm-hmm. And, we, and, and, we, and, you know, and what they quickly figure out is that you know, this 80-some-odd million or 90-some-odd million people who are left in the country, they have all the skills to maintain the United States. They have all the skills. The issue is, there are not enough of them who have the skills to maintain the country and do and do the work. Right. It's like mm-hmm. if you have a job that requires 10 skilled people, but you got three of them. Right. What do you do about the other seven? And and mm-hmm. and, and the answer to what do you do about the other seven? I, I'm really exploring the answer to that question in book two. I'm really exploring that. Right. Um, so then, you know, so so folk adapt and they cut the garment to fit the cloth, as my grandmother would say, uh, and try to figure it out. Mm. Because I think about this, you know, from a from the from the other perspective, you know, from the from the real life social commentary perspective, one of the things I've used with my students as an example to understand the the concept of white supremacy, right, is a quote that came from Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson, who's a the brother that they tried out on Fox News, you know, to tell you about everything that's wrong with black people. But one of the things he said after uh, Hurricane Katrina, he said, um, he said that, you know, if white people left the United States, it would turn into a ghetto within 10 days. And then he used what allegedly happened in New Orleans when Katrina, all of those all those false narratives and, and fake, you know, the, the, the fake news about, you know, black people shooting at helicopters and stuff. And uh, allegedly the, the terror that happened at the Superdome that literally never happened. Right. He used that as an example. And I hear you in this book addressing that notion. That's one of the things we've been inundated with. It's one of those backdrops of white supremacy. Hey, if white people weren't here, y'all would really tear this whole thing up. So I'm curious to see and and, and excited to read about how you address that specifically, too. Yeah, I use I use use some devices for that. So, for example, um, I appreciate that question. For example, the president um, at the time that the sleepers virus uh, outbreaks in the country. You know, the president is black, right? Um, and when you read about him and, and look at his decision making and sort of how he deals with leadership, you know, he may be somewhat recognizable to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. What's funny about that is there have been a couple big apocalyptic movies right. where the world is going to shit. And right. it's a black president. And I, I'm like, man, I mean, it's great, but it sucks. <laughs> Morgan Freeman and uh, whoever yeah. was, you yeah. know, when, when the asteroid's coming, it's a black man at the helm. Jamie like, Foxx. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know what that's let me, about. Let me, let me tell you what Barack did. Let me tell you what Barack did. And this might be his most genius cultural thing. Barack slipped on Morgan Freeman's loafers. His shoes. He slipped his shoes on. He ran for that job and he got it. By the time Barack stood there being very Morgan Freeman ish. Right. 30, 40 percent of the population, you know, white and black. That was very recognizable. Like, yeah, we've seen this movie before. Yeah, we've been watching. (laughs) We've been watching 10 years 
of a fictitious black president. I mean, remember the cat that was in, what was it, 20, what was it, the show, 24 hours or 24 something? 24. Uh, Palmer. 24. President Palmer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fake yeah, Denzel. Yeah, that, Dennis Haysbert. Fake Denzel. Yeah, Dennis Haysbert. Yeah, Dennis Haysbert, man. Well, I like that cat. <laughs> but Dennis Haysbert had been rocking the presidency, what, 10 years before Barack came up on the seat. So so I'm saying by the time Barack, you know, I, and I think, I think, you know, that his style people understood that there was sort of a style precedent that had been set. And he just, he just put them shoes on, man, and, and went with it. Yeah. Issue, uh, uh, potential influence number two, Night of the Living Dead, the original mm. black and white joint with the mm-hmm. black protagonist in this world where it all goes to hell, but like he's the guy. Did, did, did you see that movie? Is it somewhere in your conscious and your psyche? And how do you feel that, you know, when you hear that alongside of your book? So, I've seen almost all the all the high quality and and a bunch of the low quality zombie movies, right? I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm 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 betwixt in between the apocalyptic genre and the zombie genre, mm-hmm. right? And I so it's it's all a brew in there for me. And what I've noticed about the best zombie movies is, and and series, um, you know, there's usually a very strong leadership black person. Even if that person is not the leader, that person is the glue of the group, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That person has got discipline and skills and toughness, whether male or female. Uh, Michonne in, in The Walking Dead is probably, in my opinion, other than Ving Rhames, other than Ving Rhames, I think Michonne is the best black zombie apocalypse character <laughs> that, that's ever freaking. But Ving Rhames was a boss. Like, he, yeah, was, he was a super boss. <laughs> so, so, just a super boss, man. So, so. You know, so so that for me, creatively, man, that's that's definitely in there. Um, but the other piece, though, too, man, and I'm tr- I've tried to be true to this. You know, th- this is a this is a new story, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 I've actually, and Mo may be able to speak to this. I've actually reached a point where, you know, I've got like six major characters in book one, and by the end of that thing, man, they were talking to me, like Ted, this is who I am, and this is how I'm processing. You know, like like that, like for example, Donnie Hernandez definitely started out as me when I was in my twenties, right? That was where I creatively sort of drew that, but you know, that cat has become his own guy, right? And he's got his own, his, his own struggle and his own look, you know, at what the society is going to be. And he's like, Ted in book two, I'm trying to boom, 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 and boom. I'm like, okay, Donnie, I'm as soon as I can sit down and write about that, brother, <laughs> you'll have, you'll have full expression on that. Right. And, yep. and, but that's, that's, that's sort of, so at this point, man, I'm, I'm really, as a writer, I'm trying to just really step back with, 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 um, very little agenda, except an endpoint. I do have an endpoint. I have an endpoint, but other than the endpoint, I'm letting the characters speak to how we get there collectively. How really is your wife dealing that. with all these voices in your head? <laughs> Um, well, my wife, of course, thinks that hers is the singular voice. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, actually, she's been really good, man. I mean, so, so, so look, it, it took me six years to write the book. The reason it took six years is because I'm sure that I walked away from the book at least six times. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I walked away from it six times. And each time I walked away, it wasn't like a couple of weeks here. It was like uh, six months here, four months there, a year here. <laughs> And and my wife is one of maybe two or three people that fully encouraged me to finish the task and to get through the big push. 
Because as I said at the top of the discussion, I was not a writer of fiction. And, you know, this idea in terms of how large it is totally scared the hell out of me. I was like, I'm not qualified to do this. Mm. Right. Like, like even, even at the point where I was starting to enjoy writing the story. Right. I was like, I don't know how this is going to, there's no precedent in my life or anybody I know where doing this shit is a good idea. There's no precedent for this. Right. But yet I finished. And so now, now guys, I'm like, I book two will be ready in 2021. Like I would sit down for six months, bang that out and then make it happen. Cause now I have sort of all this confidence and a voice to sort of put that forward. It's your, it's your first one. And as a, you know, like an academic writing, so your dissertation is, mm-hmm. is going to be your worst writing and not mm-hmm. that it's bad, but you're just going to continue to get better. Your ability to write is going to get better. Your efficiency gets better. Mm-hmm. Your ability to, and I'm, and I'm drawing the parallels, you know, like in my work, I had to put Lev Vygotsky and Eminem and Lord Jamal for Brand Nubian all in conversation with each other <laughs> conceptually, right, in order mm-hmm. to understand and make sense of mm-hmm. science mindedness and black folks and how mm-hmm. we learn and expand. What does it mean to build? How would Lev Vygotsky, this early, you know, 20th, 8th, 19th century Russian, mm-hmm. you know, psychologist, how would he respond to notions within the, you know, the 5% of, you know, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, building, right? And as you said, you have to get to the point where you step back and become the vessel through yeah. which they communicate. And that's, that's right. got to come forth in aspects of your academic writing. You know, it can't be, you know, my buyers would be you know, like, this can't be you. This has to be them in, in concert and speaking awesome. to each other across, you know, uh, 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 you know, across genres, across race, across culture, across time, you know, across whether you even exist. You know what I mean? So, um, and definitely I walked away from my writing. I quit like at least two or three times a night while I was writing. Yeah. Man, I'm done with this. I am not, I ain't finishing, man. Just, you know what? I'm disappointing everybody who knows I'm in grad school. I'm good. I prepare my speech. I'm done. I walk yeah. away, go eat a sandwich and then come back and sit right back down. Right. <laughs> you know? But I had to allow myself to quit. I was going to say the last thing you pointed out was that whole imposter syndrome, the idea like, who am I to be writing this right now? Who am I to be, you know, presenting this as some sort of social commentary? I can imagine you felt that, too. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I'll tell you, too, man, an easy way that this shows up, that shows up in my writing is with one of my now central characters, Sabrina. Right. If you if you read the prologue in the in the original conception of that character, Sabrina dies in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. Right. I let a fan read the prologue. And the first thing this fan said to me was, um, so so what's going to happen to Sabrina? And when the fan said that to me, I was like, huh. Shit. Sabrina needs to live <laughs> mm-hmm. like she needs to live. Right. And then when I began writing the character, I was like, man, I was getting ready to be a huge miss. Because this character is actually a badass and and she becomes central. You know, she's like a diadem in her family. She's central in her family and and she's going to become central furthermore in book one and in book two. I'm like, I, I could have easily, easily missed that. 
Mm. Um, especially, especially with a very male centric mentality, because my first five characters are all men or my major characters, are all males with, with attendant women around. Right. And then mm-hmm. as I, as I personally matured and as my writing matured, I said, well, I need two, I need at least two strong female characters. So, and now I went to, and I created a created one. Like I brought Sabrina back, Sabrina, and I turned one of the characters from male to female. Right. And then we have everybody else. Um, but in, you know, in further books, the, the female character will loom even more large um, in terms of leadership and presence and everything else. It's one of those things, that, and I hear it in your book, right, as you're addressing aspects of race, one of the huge aspects of white supremacy has been this general notion that if you're not white, you're not a contributor. And so I can also hear myself you know, as I'm being challenged by the feminist scholars who raise me academically, like, right. how are you going to write about race? And here you are by gender ignoring half of That's the right. ideas, half That's of right. the knowledge, half of the of the human resource More that is half. womanhood, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Like 58 percent, right. you right. know? That's right. You know, I, I, I really, guys, I really I really, of course, want to win with black people in this. And, and my whole approach from a promotions perspective is to win with black people. I most especially want to win with black women, most especially. And there are cultural reasons for that. There are marketplace reasons for that. But my thinking is that if I can win with black women and I can be authentic and tell this and future stories the right way, then then, um, that will be how I determine my own success in this. We need to be interviewing Tracy then. (laughs) <laughs> your, 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 she's your, your life partner, your co-writer in your head. I mean, she's, she is the voice, the mind you've had to read for the last 30 years. So she knows the book. She knows the story. It'd be awesome to she see sure kind of what she's got going on. My third uh, influence is the movie with John Travolta and Harry Belafonte, White Man's Burden, in which it's the <laughs> flip-flop world. Are you aware of this movie? It was a bad movie, but... How does that feel next to your book? You know, I, I am aware. I'm aware of that entire genre. Like, I, like I'm because that particular movie isn't the only submission for that genre. And so okay. the, 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 this idea of of the world either started flipped or became flipped um, is not new, especially um, in a lot of um, literature that came out of the 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'd say potentially early 70s as well. Um, you know. I, I don't want to pigeonhole my work into that genre, although it absolutely has features of that, um, you know, because there's this huge geopolitical thing that's happening um, in parallel with what's happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in fact, books three, four, and five depend upon almost more about what happens internationally than what just happens in the U.S., right? Um, and so I, I would say that my story is a bigger is a is a is a bit larger scale than just sort of what is happening societally um, in America. And eventually we get there. Yeah. Eventually we get there. Um, but yeah, I'm aware of the genre. Mm-hmm. Cool. Got a quick question I ask a lot in in sci-fi in your own watching. I find sci-fi split into two very distinct buckets. 
and there's some there's some hybrid stuff as well we can pick out but typically it's like post-apocalyptic future or mm-hmm. there's this utopian dystopian future where some people uh-huh. live you know this utopian life and then you go off into some rim world planet and, and everybody's you know doing right. handstands and vomit which which do you do you typically watch and what do you what which do you favor like what are your some of your favorite properties um what was that movie um where what was it called it was matt damon and it was yep. all the rich people had created the off world elysium i think yeah, right. it was Alicia. Alicia right? that, yeah. that was very, very, very interesting. That's the utopian right? dystopian piece. Right. right. That was very interesting because, you know, here you have this marvelous society outside of the entire planet um, that set itself up to essentially colonize the resources and the people of the earth to get its needs met. And they had all the health care and they had all the advantage and all the privilege and so on and so forth. Um, and you got folks, you know, back on earth struggling with little to nothing, mm-hmm. um, you know, li- living literally in hell with no access to anything and no ability, apparently no ability to, to change, um, to change their lives, like no ability to, to, you know, to aspire, to acquire anything. Um, th- that was probably the first time that I had sort of visually seen something like that, where it was such a stark difference that also resonated with where our lives are like in America today, right? Healthcare in America looks the way it does because, you know, the elites have decided to make it a capitalistic system. And that's the only reason. That's that's it. It's like, you know what? We're into making this money. And if you get cancer and die in order for us to make this money, that's just sort of what it is. Yep. Even if there's readily accessible healthcare to help you with that and live and so on and so forth. Um, I would say that, that my book series, um, will dovetail a bit into that, but not in the way that you might think, right? Because I'm probably more a socialist than I am a capitalist. I'm just talking about my personal philosophy, Yeah. right? I'm probably more socialist. And, and so the society, for example, that's a two thirds of the population, what I call the insufficiently melanated, the IMs. When they wake up, they're not going to wake up to a society in which their core needs cannot and will not be met. Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to wake up into a society in which they are no longer privileged. Right. And so that's where the commentary is going to be built around. Right. You are no longer privileged. And by the way, there it's impossible for you to reaccess the privilege that you went to sleep on that literally no longer exists. And in fact, you know, because it is means because it's still human beings. There is privilege that exists, right? And you are unqualified to access that privilege. Mm. It's literally impossible. You can eat, you can live, you can have a job, you can work, you can build a family, but you will never again have access to that privilege that you've known ever. Um, and there's there is very interesting political and sociopolitical fallout. As a function of that, and we're going to explore that a lot. 